This is episode 24 of Dear Analyst, and today I'm going to be talking about how to calculate percentiles in Excel and Google Sheets. And I don't really do much percentile calculating in my in my days now using spreadsheets in Excel, um, but this topic came up due to a webinar I had to do at work, and I realized that I had never really actually used uh, percentile functions in Excel and Google Sheets. So I just did a quick Google search to see how it's being done and uh, wanted to talk about some of my findings uh, today. And I actually have built out a small example in Google Sheets, which I've included in the show notes. So feel free to check out that that link. It's some um, view only, so you can copy it and see the formulas behind the calculations, and they're pretty straightforward and simple, um, but they're worth talking about in this episode for those of you who are new to calculating percentiles. So the first formula that we're I'm going to discuss is pretty straightforward. It's called the percentile function, and I've actually never I don't think I've used it before, but maybe like a long, long time ago, but it was just good to kind of revisit what this, this uh, form function does in Google Sheets and Excel. So in Google Sheets, uh, if you have the file open, you'll see that I have, let's see, one, two, three, four, six names and, there, and six test scores for each person. Uh, the test scores are 66, 78, 60, 89, 45, 92. Numbers aren't really that important. Um, but our goal is to use the percentile function to find the, the test score that would equate to a 90th percentile. So people that have, people that have a score, uh, people that have some score and 90% of the people have below that score, that result. So the percentile function really just takes in two arguments. The first argument is the range of scores. So in this case, it's C4 to C9, my six test scores. And then the second argument is the actual uh, percentile that you're looking for. So this is usually a number you put in a separate column. And if you want to represent the 90th percentile, you just do 0 0.9, 80th percentile is 0.8, so on and so forth. So once you put in the range of numbers, the scores, followed by a comma, then you reference the percentile number. In this case, I have my percentile number in column E of the Google Sheet. And so when you calculate the result of the 90th percentile, so that's C4, C9, comma E4, which is my 0.9 value, the result is 90 0.5. So that means 90% of all the test scores have a value of 90.5 and below. So the only test score above 90.5 is Peter in my data set, who has a 92. And so everyone below Peter has a score below 90. 92. Um, so that's why Peter's like would be considered in the 
uh, 90th percentile because he has a score greater than 90.5 and everyone else has a score below that. And then as you go down from 90th percentile down to 40th percentile, the, 40, the 40th percentile result is 66, indicating that 40% of all test scores have a score of 66 or below. I think what kind of <clears throat> might trip people up is that the result is just the number that you can use for future test scores. There may be test scores that don't have that exact number. So for instance, the 70th percentile is 83.5. No one in my data set has a score of 83.5, but that just is an indication that 70% of all test scores currently have a uh, result of 83.5 and below. So a pretty straightforward function. Um, there's a ton of articles on online you can find to figure out what the percentile is and how the function works. But I wanted to look at a, a different calculation and that's using, how do you find the rank percentile? So instead of giving Excel or Google Sheets the actual like the N, in this case, 90%, 80%, 70%, if I have a list of scores, how do I know what percentile that score falls in within my data set? So this is like a little more challenging. There isn't a, I, I didn't, I was, this was actually a function or formula I was looking for originally. And everything I found online was just relating to the percentile function, which wasn't like what I wanted to find in terms of my results. I want to know that if I have a score of 66, I want to know which percentile that score falls in within my list of test scores. So a little different uh, calculation. And there is no specific function that does this. So you have to do a combination of two functions. So it's a little more complicated. And in the Google Sheet, you'll see the, separate, the second section that says using rank to find rank percentile to uh, get the number, which is in column D in yellow. So we're gonna start with the same exact data set. I have Dan, Gary, Jenny, Jim, Alice, Peter, the same test scores. And the first thing you have to do is actually use the rank function. Now the rank function is an interesting function. Um, I've used this before in the past, don't use it that often, but it's basically a way to figure out uh, what, what rank a given value is in your data set. So the before Excel 2010, you would just use the rank function. But I think that based on my like really basic research, the rank function is actually outdated. And in versions of Excel past 2010, you should be using the rank.eq function. And Google Sheets also has both rank and rank EQ, but I'm using rank.eq just to be safe. And it... Um, when you type up, when you look at the autocomplete like description of rank versus rank.eq, rank says rank of a specified value in data set. Rank.eq is top rank of a specified value in a data set. I'm not sure exactly what's happening behind the scenes in terms of the algorithm that is calculating rank or rank.eq, but it sounds like rank.eq is just like a more efficient function. So that's why we're using rank.eq. So the rank.eq, EQ function takes in two arguments. 
um, and one optional argument. So the first argument is, let's see here, it just takes the, the value, in this case, the test score. So you're just gonna, in this case, it's gonna be C15. And then the next, va next input is the data range. So this is your, all your test scores in your data set. And um, that's gonna basically output the rank in the rank of that number of that test score in the um, in the data set. So Peter has a score of 92, which is the best score in the whole data set, which is why his if you use the rank.eq function on his score, it will give you a value of one, meaning that he is the top score in the data set. Nothing too crazy there. Now, how would you, why do we need to use the rank function? So the rank function returns the rank of this, the value, but to calculate the percentile, we just need to take that rank number and divide it by the count of test scores to figure out the percentile. So in this case, we would expect Peter to have a percentile of 100%, meaning that his test score is greater than 100% of all other test scores, while um, Alice, now this is where I think, I mean, I need to do some more research on what this actually means, but Alice has a, so I'm not gonna get into the, the formula yet, but just looking at the results. Alice has a test score of 45, which is the lowest test score in the data set, and she has a percentile of 17%, which I find a little puzzling because there, she has the lowest test score, so she shouldn't have a, there's, she wouldn't have her test score is not necessarily greater than, there, I'm trying to back this up and try to explain this with words, which is what this podcast is, is this formula claims that her score is greater than 17% of all the other test scores, but I find that baffling because she already has the uh, lowest test scores. Um, so I wonder if it's looking at 17%, maybe it's like, it's looking at the test score above that, or maybe it's like she has, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But anyways, if I look at the function a little more, um, you can't just take, so the, you, if you take the current formula we have, which is rank.eq of the score divided by the range, and then divide that by the count, you're gonna get a strange result. And that's because you actually, it's it's gonna be actually doing the reverse of what you want because if you take Peter's rank and divide it by the six test scores, you're gonna get a value of 20%. And that's actually incorrect because we know that Peter has a high test score and we know that he has a test score greater than 100% of all other values. It's not 20%. And so this is where you can use the optional argument in the rank.eq function, which is the third argument, and by default, um, it I think it presumes that you're, you should consider the values in ascending order. Uh, so by, actually, sorry, by default, if you omit the optional value, the data set will be uh, automatically ranked in descending order, which is why Peter's score results in number one, 
But if you change that optional argument to the number one, where ascending is true, then it just reverses it. So now Peter's score, even though he has the high test, highest test score in the data set, his rank is going to be six because we've reversed the um, order of the data set. And so now if you take Peter's test score rank, which is six, and then divide it by the count of test scores, which is also six, then you're gonna get the proper percentile of that test score, which is 100% in this case. If we look at uh, the first test score, which is Dan, he has a test score of 66. His percentile is 50%, indicating that his test score is greater than 50% of all other test scores in the data set. So the key trick here is two things is, well, knowing to use the rank form formula, but then also putting in that optional argument of ascending is true so that you consider the values to be in ascending order rather than descending, which is a default because by default, when you use the rank formula, you're it typically the highest number is considered rank number one. And so by putting in that optional argument, you reverse that to, uh, you reverse the order of the data set to be ascending so that the highest score ends up being the quote unquote lowest rank, if you will. And then when you have that lowest rank, you can divide that number by the count of data values to get the proper percentile of that test score among the whole population of scores. So the one thing I'm still trying to figure out is what does it mean to have, if you have the lowest test score in data set, what does it mean to have a percentile of 17% in this case? I would expect that Alice would have a percentile of 0% because she has the lowest score, um, but there's probably something that I'm not getting right now because it's early in the morning. And um, if any of you have any thoughts on what that percentile means, um, would be would be great to see the um, your your ideas in the in the comments. So that was me. That was my exploration of using the trying to work with percentiles and rank percentiles in Excel and Google Sheets. I don't envision myself using this too often um, in the future because I just don't. I think whenever I do any kind of statistical analysis like this, I just will either use the analysis tool pack in Excel um, or the um, the Excel miner pack, I believe it's called, in Google Sheets, and it just kind of spits out a lot of these results for you. Um, but it's always good to know how to do these things, quote unquote, by hand with formulas so that you can, you know, basically uh, not rely on a static analysis, which is what the analysis tool pack and Excel Miner pack are great for um, in, in Excel and Google Sheets, respectively. Okay, so that wraps up my, the analyst, I guess, Excel portion of the podcast episode. And I only want to talk about one other episode um, that I've listened to recently, uh, on the various myriad of podcasts I listen to. And this one is from one of my um, favorite episodes about um, startups and working in a startup. And it is the podcast aptly named This Week in Startups by Jason Calacanis. And Jason 
Calcanis. Am I saying that right? I hope so. And it's episode 1002, where Jason interviews the Wealthfront CEO and co-founder Andy Ratcliffe. On hitting escape velocity at Wealthfront, pioneering self-driving money for consumers, shares, insights on product building in 1980s versus today, best investor attributes, and the future of next-gen banking. Um, I'm a relatively new user of Wealthfront, great product, and um, so I was really interested in hearing what the CEO had to say. And around minute 30 of this episode, I... I've heard this concept before, I think reading various like blog posts or business books, but hearing the way Andy and Jason talk about this topic was a little um, eye-opening for me and made me think about like current the current startup ecosystem and how people launch startups, go to market, uh, so on and so forth. So Andy was discussing how previously when you were working on a new venture or new startup, a lot of venture capitalists were basically betting on the CEO, the startup founders to have the skills, like the, the actual technical skills of a craftsman, of someone who can build like tools and build, um, build like a, a new product. They were betting on that person to take on the technical risk of building that product and launching it to the market. And, the risk was more on like, did you have the like brain power and the smarts and the proper training to like build like a, um, a computer or build like a MP3 player or build a computer chip. And typically these were hardware type of companies. <clears throat> but then as you started shifting towards the two thousands with, um, or I mean, even before that, but just like shifting from hardware to software, they discuss how venture capitalists are now not betting so much on the startup founder t- as a technical craftsman, but rather as a person who can scale growth and um, have effective growth, go-to-market strategies. Because instead of taking on, instead of you as a startup founder having technical risks, more of today's risk is coming from the market. And I really like the way that they described how um, you can't, there's no barrier now to building the next Uber um, in terms of the technical side. So the software, the uh, programming of the software, if you will, is not really that difficult when it comes to building an app like Uber or Airbnb. The difficult part is whether or not the market will accept that product. And in the case of Uber, it's like whether or not people will get into a random stranger's car, Airbnb, whether or not you'll book a ride or book a room with a random stranger's house. And also, I mean, if you think about the supply side, it's whether or not people that drive cars, people that have um, empty space in their houses are willing to put their inventory on the market. And... And that's and Andy talks about how the shift from hardware to software has really uh, accelerated the shift from the technical risk, the competency of the startup founder to actually build the product, to the market, which is kind of like outside the control of the 
startup founder's hands um, because you can build like an amazing product, but there is no market for it, then it's pretty much useless. And so now you're not, I feel like the startup founder's role is more about whether or not they can have a proper go-to-market function, you know, do the proper marketing, do the proper, um, you know, uh, sales fo- sales motions, do the proper content marketing, um, do the proper onboarding. Like all that stuff is now kind of at the whims of just consumers in the market. And I think if you're looking at a software startup, I think there are obviously some differences between um, like a consumer versus a B2B software startup. Uh, but I think you're still dealing with like a market of users who are willing to adopt and integrate your product. In this case, let's say B2B software, be able to integrate your product with their current suite of software. Um, so I think for startup founders out there who think they're building the the next great technical product, um, sure, there's still ways to innovate on the hardware side, but I think it's really hard to innovate now on the software side because so much of software now is dependent on can you get enough if, if you're, let's say you're building a marketplace software product, can you get enough supply and demand in that marketplace to really, you know, spin that flywheel? Um, on the consumer side, it's just really, can you get enough people to use your photo sharing app when there's already Instagram and, I don't know, Snapchat, TikTok, all these different consumer apps? Now, if you step back and think about that a little bit, it's a little bit scary. Like, why would you ever want to do a startup now? Not, I mean... For me, it's like you just, it feels like from the shift that Andy and Jason are talking about, there's, you have less control over your fate and destiny as a startup if the product is really, and the the success of the product is at the whims of just the market of people that you're trying to attract. And the cleverness, I think is one way of putting it, the cleverness, cleverness of your uh, marketing strategies and your go-to-market go-to-market um, strategies. Um, so, and having said all this, I think that's why there's been such a resurgence and interest in go-to-market strategies from all the various other podcasts I listen to, from all the other blog posts I read. I feel like less of it is about um, all the technical hurdles and battles and late nights we had to do to build so-and-so product. It was all about. It's all about how do we make sure we launch properly and product hunt? How do we properly um, get a hit on TechCrunch? Or how do we properly, uh, you know, launch our our content strategy so that we can uh, reach our target audience in the shortest amount, shortest amount of time possible, um, but to get that uh, outsized growth and increase in user signups that we need to keep our company sustainable. And so... I mean, it's good. I mean, I think it's it. This shift is giving rise to a whole new profession. I mean, I'm part of a growth function at my current company. I'm part of the go-to-market arm, and I find it really interesting because there are ways that you can um, try to automate and leverage the channels and tools you have today to reach a new audience. Um, but it is also scary knowing that the growth and go-to-market function is kind of responsible for the uh, for the sustainability of the company and the product. Um, it's obviously not to say that the engineering and product and um, uh, you know our support team are not important for 
the product itself, but um, the barriers to create the technical aspects of a software product are just becoming less and less. And I mean, there's a whole other realm of this conversation related to the no code uh, tools that allow you to build these products. And that's, I mean, for those of you who have been listening to this podcast, you know how much I'm a believer in this no code movement. Um, but there is, there's actually a very uh, popular um, company called MakerPad, which all, all they do, and I know the, um, I know the the founder of the company is just being able to. They, one of their one of the core um, beliefs or, I guess, products of that they offer is like the ability to build popular websites without using code. So they are able. To, they've shown how you can quickly build versions of Uber, of Airbnb, of of TechCrunch or Crunchbase, of all these popular um, websites and applications <clears throat> without having to use code. And that just shows even further the barrier to building these these tools and applications is so low, but and the hardest barrier, the biggest barrier is just getting the right number of users um, at the right time and making sure that you're not too early or too late to the market is um, becoming more important than the the product itself. Um, so I thought that was just, this conversation just was really good in terms of setting some context in terms of what it's like to launch a startup these days. And um, I, I think that more and more startups were, are going to see that the um, the success of the startup is going to be tied to go-to-market partnerships and those kind of um, motions in your company versus just having like an awesome product that people just discover one day and just like want to pick up and use. And Hopefully this was uh, this episode was in, enlightening for you you all as well, and I definitely recommend giving it uh, a listen. And that's going to be it for today's episode. Mm-hmm.